Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am fine. I want to talk to you about Bostock. Bostock versus Georgia. Yes. Because I think that it means a lot of things, but I'm not entirely certain that it means what I think it means. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I want to make sure that I understand what the, what the actual parameters of the, of the case were and um and mr gorsuch wrote the justice gorsuch wrote the the majority opinion majority opinion right which is a little bit of a surprise as well yes um considering the considerations yes so 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 basically uh, what's the case so boss bostock versus clayton county georgia uh was uh one of three consolidated cases that the supreme court took uh to answer and it seemed like a really simple question, but like with any simple question, okay, <laughs> it gets really complicated. Okay, the simple question was this, okay, can an employer uh, fire an individual because they are being gay or transgendered? And the, uh, the reason why this question uh, was, was significant or important is that um, it brought into play what was the meaning of one of the most important civil rights laws ever passed in our country's history? And that is the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and in particular, Title VII of that law. So on our research guide for this podcast episode, we will have both the link to the Supreme Court ruling, but also Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. In Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Nia, uh, the law explicitly prohibits employers discriminating discriminating against employees for a number of variables, okay, Um, including sex. And where this becomes really difficult is that in these three consolidated cases, under the broad title of Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia. So I'm just going to shorten that to Bostock versus Georgia, okay? Okay. Um, You had employers who fired employees because they were either gay or transgender. And the employees claimed that their terminations violated Title VII uh, because they were being terminated, okay, because of their sex. Now, what was at issue in the case was, what did Congress mean with the word sex? Oh, did it mean gender or did it mean preference? Preference, that's right. partnership. Yep, that's right. Or... Oh, so it would cover both of those things. Okay. But but differently. But differently. Because if you're talking about sex in terms of gender... then the transgender is covered. But if you're talking about sex in terms of preference, preference for partnership, partnership, 
then you would be talking about homosexuality yes being covered or not yes. being covered as the case now, may be now well that's not vague is it yes now what's interesting about it uh, there's a lot of interesting things but one of the first things i wanted to go ahead and point out about this law is how sex as a prohibitive variable for termination okay how it got into the law is also fascinating. The 1964 Civil Rights Act, okay, uh, when it was first proposed, focused on race. Employers could not use race as a variable for, if you will, employment decisions. That makes sense. They're trying to end Crow, Jim Crow. Yeah, Jim Crow, okay, okay, segregation, right? Now, as the law was being debated, on the floor of Congress, a representative by, uh, uh, from the uh, uh, Commonwealth of Virginia, Howard Smith, okay, one of uh, the members of the historical bird political machine, okay, in Virginia, okay, who were, shall we say, not all that enlightened about race relationships in the United States. He thought that he could scuttle okay, approval of the 1964 Civil Rights Act if he included sex, okay? Because yes. it would be so controversial that- It would be so controversial. It had not been vetted by either House or Senate committees or subcommittees that it would force members of the House and the Senate to vote against the 64 Civil Rights Act. Okay, but it, send it, it back to committee in yes. order to vet all that stuff and then hopefully die there. That's right. Okay. But it had the opposite effect because the, you know, the small number of women in Congress, okay, many of whom were going to go ahead and vote against the 64 Civil Rights Act, changed their votes because they're like, hell yes. If we... <laughs> If employers can't discriminate based on race, then they can't discriminate based on gender. Were the, were the people at the time who were going to reject that, reject it because of racism, or were they going to reject it because it didn't cover enough categories? Most who opposed the 64 Civil Rights Act clearly said with House and Senate uh, uh, floor speeches, they opposed it because of race. Because oh, they okay. knew they knew that it would help dismantle Jim Crow. Okay. Okay. But it comes back and bites Smith in the proverbial butt, if you will, because it actually led some moderates, okay, to vote in favor of it. Okay, because they're like, yeah, you shouldn't be able to do that for women or for on based on race. Yes, and there were other categories. And at the time in 1964 in the united states there was not such a thing as transgender there were men no. and there were women no i and, mean and in none of the committee or not that transgender people didn't exist but yes but moreover to your point there uh, nia okay in the committee and subcommittee hearings okay and reporting out the bills to both the house and the senate there was no discussion of homosexuality right? I mean, when they were talking about sex, okay, there was very little next to no discussion of sex, meaning anything other than gender, male or female. But they didn't say 
They gender. didn't say it. They did they not said, say it. Said, they used the word sex, sex instead of the word gender. That's right. Okay. So the case gets to the Supreme Court. Okay. Um, this case. Yeah, this case. Okay. And the definition of sex, okay, drives the entire case. Okay? Drives the entire case. Because how sex is defined today has changed compared to when the law was being vetted and voted on. So should we, okay, adhere to what Congress more than likely meant when they passed the law in 64? Or should we take into account its everyday meaning today? Oh. Yeah, so I can see where that would be tough for a, a textualist. Okay, so let's go ahead and define what we mean by textualist. Because for, you know, for our, for our listeners, okay, who don't take constitutional law, and by the way, shame on you for never taking <laughs> constitutional law. No, I'm just kidding, just kidding. Okay. You've, I've, I, I've just been mildly shamed, um, folks, because <laughs> I have not yet taken his con law class. I, I will at some point, but... Um, okay, so there are two dominant uh, methods for interpreting legal text in use today in the United States. One is known as strict constructionist, and the other, one's no, no, the other one is known as loose constructionist, okay? In strict constructionism, one of the dominant, if you will, sub-theories is known as textualism, meaning the judge looks at the text and determines what does the text mean, okay? And that should guide how the judge rules. I have a question. Okay. Yes. Nia is raising her hand. Okay. <laughs> Student so, Rogers. Yes. <laughs> so ne the Napoleonic way of looking at the law that's used in Louisiana is based on textualism, right? It's what the text says, not how it's been interpreted. Yes. In other, in other judicial, like, like yeah. precedence doesn't count because it's not a matter of that. It's a matter of the interpretation of the words on the paper. Yes. So that's what textualism is, the words on the paper. That's right. Okay. okay. Not what would those words mean today. That's right. But yes. what, does, what does the actual wording say, which is why the stupid Second Amendment is so poorly written that it's difficult, like why it keeps causing problems because it's, yeah, because the text is unclear. Yeah, because as we discussed in a previous podcast episode, um, the Second Amendment has, you know, a long introductory clause. And if you think that that clause, okay, has bearing on the right that follows after the comma, then there's not an individual right to bear and possess a firearm. Right, you have to be in a militia. That's right. On the other hand, if you think that the introductory clause was just a really long-winded wind-up, okay. <laughs> and okay. then everything else is independent, then you do yes. have a right. Yeah, so, okay, but so there's reason to have this discussion because there, there's reasonable interpretations of what that could mean. Yes, okay. okay. So, so they're not, people who are textualists are not just being difficult. 
No. And, and the interesting thing is textualism really uh, uh, became important on the Supreme Court because of the work of one justice, Justice Scalia. Ah. Scalia was known while he was on the court as a strict constructionist. And his version of being a strict constructionist, a constructionist was textualism. Okay. In fact, he has a, 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 a very well-known book, okay, that he wrote with, uh, I think uh, the co-author's name was Brian Garner, another lawyer, okay, and we will go ahead and, you know, give you the link on the research guide for this book if you really want to delve into textualism. But basically, Scalia, when he got on the Supreme Court, okay, all the time kept on saying, it doesn't matter what members of Congress say on in floor speeches or what they indicated in committee hearings, the only thing that matters are the words of the law. Okay? Because that's what got passed. Well, so I mean... We should focus on the words of the law. Okay? Oh, and, I'm torn because part of me is like, okay, that's not an unreasonable position, but sometimes the words oh, of the law that, aren't clear. And, 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 and that's, that's always been one of the standard criticisms of textualism, which is frequently legislative bodies to achieve consensus to get laws passed use vague and ambiguous words, phrases, clauses, concepts, because the more specific you get, with a proposed law, the more the people vote against it, it's going to get rejected. <laughs> right. Okay. And, and again, think about what Howard Smith tried to do with the 64 Civil Rights Act. He thought by including sex, okay, he would actually, that would actually be like a poison pill. People would be like, oh, hell no. Okay. But instead, by including sex, all of a sudden, okay, a whole bunch of people said, yes, we are going to vote for it. I mean, as a political strategist, obviously, Howard Smith had a lot to learn. But nevertheless, by adding sex, but never clearly defining it, now it leads to, okay, jump forward, if you will, okay, now. okay, you know, 50 plus years, you got an American society that has changed dramatically, right? You know, the number of people who have, you know, come out as homosexual, who want to live their life as homosexuals. We have a Supreme Court ruling, Obergefell versus Hodges, that, say, that says same-sex couples can get married. It's legally protected by the 14th Amendment of the Equal Protection Clause, right? Right. Okay, we have countless individuals who are transgendered, queer, okay? So the question alternate becomes, presenting. I mean, there's a lot of yes. Okay, there's a lot more uh, variety of, in how we view human sexuality yeah. than we have in, in the in, past. In, yeah, in how we accept individuals' own perception of themselves. Right. We respect okay. it significantly more than we ever have in history. That's right. You tell me what you how to think of you, refer to you and and respect you and i will do so because that's that right. is the time in which we're living that's right so 
the, but the, the question becomes, should Congress change the law or can the court go ahead and interpret the law? Oh, should Congress clear up the language? That's right. What we mean is, yes, hamana, 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 hamana. Yes. Which they're going to be resistant to doing because they like Captain Vague, yeah. right? They want everything to be vague. So it would be, okay. I mean, and think about it too, with the current United States Congress, okay? They, they can't, can't agree. They cannot agree whether it's raining or not. Yeah. Let alone, I mean, something that's observable fact, they struggle to agree on. Uh, so, I, yeah, no, I can see where you would, where it would be difficult to to say that it has to be a legislative. But I also can see where, if you were a strict constructionalist, it would drive you bonkers because yes, the so language is so vague that now you don't know you don't know what that's supposed to mean. And I, because I am not a justice, because I, I, I would assume the broadest possible meaning for the text. Oh, because it, it, I would assume going, I mean, I would assume that for all of the text that I was presented with as much as possible, I would assume the broadest possible meaning, because if you didn't mean to be specific, then we, then we default to the broad. Or, you know, and, 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 you know, I can play devil's advocate and go ahead and say, well, you guys wrote the law, okay? If you meant it to mean, if you thought, if you meant sex to mean gender, okay? You should have used that okay, word. As binary, okay? Then that's what you should have said. Right. But they didn't. Right. So it gets, so it gets to the Supreme Court. It's now, milky. When, when the case was, when the oral arguments were heard last fall, okay, um, you know, the big fear, okay, uh, uh, among uh, the, you know, LGBTQT uh, community was that we now have five justices on the court appointed by Republican presidents, and there's only four who were appointed by Democratic presidents, okay? You know, so the quick and dirty math was, you know, this before, is going down in flames. Yeah, this is going down in flames, right? Uh, the Supreme Court's basically going to go ahead and tell us that the Congress meant sex uh, to mean binary gender, male or female, and that's it, okay? Uh, and then we'll have to go ahead and convince Congress, right? Which that is much harder, much yeah, harder to do because much. that's a lot more people. There's a lot more varied interests. Yes, ordinary politics. Okay, the lawmaking process is not for the faint of heart. Okay, <laughs> no. Um, and I can't, I can't remember which season was it. Was it season one or season two, uh, Nia? Uh, when we did a series of uh, of episodes on how a bill becomes a law. That was season okay. one, I think. Season one, but you know, listeners, you might want to go ahead and listen to that because that process is painstaking. Yes. It's dirty. It's messy. You know, uh, and the, often doesn't work. Like often things yes. die long before they get anywhere near yes. a vote of any kind. There's no guarantees in the lawmaking process. Yeah. Oh, right? you're, you're. I've been. I've assigned your thing to the forestry committee. Well, it doesn't have anything to do with forestry. Yeah, that's too bad. But they're the ones who can take it. So that's who I'm assigning it to. And good luck with that. Yeah. I yes. Mean, yes. Yeah. So okay. It get, so it gets to the court now. 
if you listen to the oral arguments of that case, and by the way, we can also provide a link to the transcript of the oral arguments for that case. Um, and by the way, oral arguments are historically unreliable for predicting how the justices are going to vote. Because as Nia, you and I have talked about, the justices usually show up at oral arguments already have made up their mind. They're asking questions in part because they're trying to convince their colleagues to vote with them, right? Right. I mean, it's not like they're, you know, trying to find that, you know, magical piece of information from a lawyer that will help, you know, settle the case for their, you know, uh, 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 undecided mind. No, they've showed up usually already knowing which way they're going to vote. What's the first thing you learn in law school? Never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Right. And yes. are these not the top lawyers in the nation? nation. I mean, yes. the right. nine lawyeriest of lawyers? That's right. They're not asking any question that they don't already know, they the, know answer. the answer to. Right? But if you, if you uh, uh, listen to the oral arguments or read the transcript, to me what was fascinating was the questions uh, that Neil Gorsuch was asking. And I'm focusing on Justice Gorsuch in part because, you know, the expectation was he was Trump's first nominee to the Supreme Court. He replaced Scalia, right? And uh, on the Supreme Court, you know, this was the infamous, you know, uh, seat on the Supreme Court that was stolen from the Democrats, right? Uh, the Senate Republicans. Uh, Merrick, Merrick Garland. That's right. The Senate Republicans refused to even grant a hearing to Merrick Garland, who had been nominated by President Obama, right? Because they were less than a year from the election. So right. if, if theoretically, if one of them stepped down now, if Mitch McConnell was true to his own statements, oh. he would not, yeah, oh. he would, but Mitch we McConnell can't go was already gone ahead and said, if any of the Supreme Court justices retire or die before Donald Trump ends, and Trump makes a nominee to replace that justice, the Senate uh, will hold hearings and take a vote on Trump's nominee. Yeah, it, it yeah. was a straight up lie. The Merrick Garland thing was a straight up lie. Yeah, it was, it, it was a political pl power play. Right, it, it, and it, it worked. And it worked, it was, okay. Except, did it? Well, did because... it, yes, <laughs> okay. And I often tell students, you know guys, don't count your justices before they hatch. Okay, that's one thing. I tell them <laughs> that all the time, right? Because okay. didn't we have a, earlier in the summer a weird bedfellow ruling where yeah, like yeah, Sotomayor yeah. and Ginsburg were with like Alito and Thomas or something weird like that where you're like, dude, how is this even not a sign of the apocalypse? Yeah, you had all the older justices vote together and all of the younger justices <laughs> vote together. Okay. So, so sometimes it just comes down to age and yeah. crotchetiness or whatever. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, across <laughs> ideological lines. And of course, you know, all the Supreme Court junkies were like, you know, is the apocalypse happening? <laughs> okay. So in addition to global warming, a pandemic, okay, et cetera, et cetera. Wow, there's some strange stuff going on here, right? <laughs> right. But I tell my students all the time, okay, in, in uh, 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 listeners, yeah, in a future podcast episode, we're going to explore court packing, okay? 
And one of the assumptions of a court, court packing effort by a president is if we do extensive vetting within the White House, we can appoint people who are gonna further I, our ideological preferences well beyond our term in office. And what presidents sometimes find out is these justices get on the court and they're not beholden to anybody and they don't feel as though, okay, they owe anybody anything. They act in ways that, you know, their mentors, their sponsors, the presidents who nominated them will be utterly shocked by, right? Have you ever seen the movie Braveheart? Yes. At one point he yells freedom in this way that's very yes. powerful and loud and huge. That's what I imagine it's like when you're a Supreme Court justice and you finally get to the court, like you passed the Senate, you've done all the, th you've signed the contract, right? Like yes. now you have your contract. I think that after that signing, you throw down your pen and you yell freedom at the top of your lungs because well, it, it, what it, is going to happen to you? Unless you murder somebody, you're not going to be impeached. That's right. And unless you die, it's up to you to retire when you that's retire. Right. So like you have now a wide open field. You, you and, and, can and, and hear... think about the, think about it this way too, Nia. You get on the Supreme Court, you've been nominated, you've gone through an increasingly arduous, politicized process. You have spent your career doing all the right things, checking all the boxes that all these other people, okay, have decided you needed to do. And now you are finally at the top of your profession, okay? That sense of freedom has got to be um, intoxicating. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say that. It's right. got to be the biggest high Yes. without drugs that you can possibly Poss get. Right? I'm assuming that it's like the night you win the presidential oh. election. Yes. And you're like, okay, I, I'm, I am now here. I'm at the pinnacle of politics. This, it right. doesn't get more pinnacle-y than this. Yes, right? So, and then the next day they make you do stuff you don't want to do. And you say, oh, <laughs> oh man. And then, and then the next day after Brett Kavanaugh does this freedom drop with the pen, they say, oh, and here's the first menu for the cafeteria. We're going to need you to take a look at that. And he's like, really? You know what I mean? Like yeah. you go way, way high. And then boom, back down to reality of, I'm going to need you to sign off on how many cans of grits I can buy. You know, like just. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so during the oral argument, <laughs> what was fascinating to me, okay, um, was the fact that Gorsuch spent a lot of time exploring with the attorneys in the case, okay, um, how should sex be read? Because... Oh, he did. Okay, so he, yes, he gave he a flag a to that. Yes, okay. he is a textualist, okay? Um, he has written journal articles about it. Um, he's written a, a, a book. Um, he, he had spe He's made speeches, I know, where he's like, the text is king and we yes. should all love the text. And yeah. He had a book come out a couple years ago uh, called A Republic If We Can Keep It, okay? Um, uh, where he spends a couple chapters talking about why textualism um, is his preferred method of legal interpretation, okay? 
And, you know, his questions, you know, caused alarm, if you will, among those who wanted uh, Title VII to be read broadly, because they were like, oh, if he's a textualist, okay, if he's a follower of Justice Scalia, and by the way, textualism has so come to dominate how the Supreme Court deals with the meaning of laws, that when Scalia died, Justice Kagan giving a eulogy, okay, about, you know, for, you know about, uh, after his death, went ahead and said, we are all now textualists on the Supreme Court. This is Kagan. She's a liberal, right? <laughs> okay. But she's just like, we are all now textualists, right? But That's the difficulty is, how do you use textualism? The Supreme Court decided this case, six to three. It was the four liberals with John Roberts, the chief justice, and Gorsuch in the majority. Since Roberts as chief justice was in the majority, he assigned the opinion to Gorsuch. Okay, not a big shock, because if you're Roberts, okay, do you really want a broad, expansive reading of Title VII, or do you want, you know, somebody who's just going to go ahead and give you the bare bones, yes, sex covers, okay, gay employees and transgendered employees. Oh, I see. So Roberts assigns it to Gorsuch to actually narrow, narrow yes. the, the opinion so that it doesn't get out of hand and turn into, like, because if he had given it to one of the more liberal justices, that opinion, one, would have been more contentious. There would have been more yes. agree, agree but dissent. I can't remember what that's called. Concurring? concurring opinions where they say okay i agree with the answer but not the reasoning blah 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 blah, blah. yeah that's right yeah so that's what would have happened if he had get, oh that's very clever of john roberts so he yeah. basically said listen conservatives i'm giving it to a conservative to write in a narrow way but, because i'm not interested in having this be an ongoing fight yes okay and, and by the way that's dashed clever. He's rather clever, our, our Chief Justice Roberts, isn't he? Yeah, but by the way, that didn't mollify the conservatives. Well, no, but yeah. I mean, because attempting to throw week, them a bone is something at least. Oh, yeah, well, that's not a bone they, they're willing to chew on, okay? <laughs> they're, they're the dog that the bone has been thrown at their feet. They've sniffed it. They have walked away growling. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, they are angry. And ex listeners, please excuse me. Okay, they're pissed, right? <laughs> I mean, because you're talking about a conservative movement that starting with at least Ronald Reagan, if not as far back as Richard Nixon, have hoped that enough Republican presidents would pick enough solidly conservative Supreme Court justices that the whole civil rights, liberal, progressive, ideological movement would be reined in by these conservatives on the Supreme Court. And once again, they've been disappointed by somebody that they spent a lot of time supporting. I mean, Gorsuch's nomination was not as contentious as Brett Kavanaugh's, but remember, okay, liberals, Democrats still believe that Gorsuch's seat is the stolen seat. That's how they refer to it. Right. This is the stolen seat, right? 
Right. But so yet again, again, yet again, two conservative Supreme Court justices, allegedly conservative Supreme Court justices, <laughs> okay, okay, have become unfaithful. They've gotten on the court, okay, and they have been unfaithful to the cause. They are upset, right? Now, if you read what's fascinating in the opinions written in this case, and there were three opinions, one majority opinion, and by the way, all four liberals, okay, God bless them, signed off on Gorsuch's majority opinion. There were no concurrences. They were all, you know, the four liberals had to be like, wow, we pulled this one out and we're not going to go ahead and upset Gorsuch we're, or the chief justice. We are not poking any bears. No. We're okay. all going to sit here with our hands where everybody can see them. No bear poking is allowed. That's right. Because That's right. Because we don't want to make this, well, and we don't want to make this working situation untenable. Yes. Right? Like these nine people have to work together for at least the rest of their lives, if not beyond into the great beyond. So, and, and by the way, we're, you know, we're at the end of the Supreme Court term. I mean, the next three to four weeks are going to be extremely contentious, right? Right. I mean, there's already going to be enough frayed nerves on the Supreme Court because <laughs> this is the time of the year where they hand down their, you know, their big controversial case decisions, right? And then they leave town and go on vacation. Yeah, that's right. Which is really pretty smart. The, the PR people will tell you, if you have to deliver horrible news, you do it at 4.30 on a Friday, because then it doesn't make the news, like it makes the Friday night news cycle, which nobody cares about. And then by Monday, it's not a story anymore. That's like right. that's like a known thing in, in yeah. especially in Hollywood, when you have to like drop the news of a divorce or something like that, you always do it late on a Friday so that there's time for people to forget that it even happened. Yes. I mean, and even in, in today's, you know, 24 seven news cycle, social media, et cetera. Okay. You drop that stuff and then you get out of town. <laughs> yeah, the and the weekend and the summer are less like scrutinized. That's right. They're less. They're less. Less people take uh, pay attention to the news, right? Yeah. During the summer. Okay, we know this, right? But anyways, if you read the three opinions, Nia, Gorsuch's majority opinion and then the two dissents, one written by Alito and the other one written by Brett Kavanaugh, right? It is a battle over how to use textualism. <laughs> it is fascinating. Okay, for, for, for So people it's not even, at this point, they're not arguing about this particular case. They're arguing about the application of the law. Well, they're, uh, the they're, application of textualism. Yeah, they're- To interpret the law. To interpret the law, okay. So we've now moved beyond- uh, The law. Uh, beyond uh, case facts, um, Miss, I uh, they, I, I'm not sure of the gender of Bostock, but I mean, we've moved the, beyond them. To, oh yes, to this isn't even about that now. We're moving on to the idea that no, 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 this is not how we do law. This yeah, this is not how we interpret law. Yeah, you are spot on. Okay, <laughs> that hey. must be particularly galling. Okay, well, I mean, and I tell students this all the time, right? We read the case facts and the students are just like, oh my goodness, you know, such and such happened to this person. I'm like, okay, 
Yes, the case facts are fascinating, but for the justices, the case facts are presenting issues of law, and in some cases like this, how to interpret the law. Philosophy okay? of law. Yeah, right? And I'm like, and they're like, yeah, but what happened to those people? And I said, okay, that's fine, okay? <laughs> okay, but you know, for the justices, this is, the case facts are the grist for the mill. Okay, and the well, mill in the mill is producing something else. In their, right in their instance, I'm not trying to say they don't care about the plaintiffs. No, neither they, am I. But they, but technically, they don't care about the plaintiffs. What they care about is the application of law, the philosophy, the, yes, of law, yes, and how you apply law and how you apply it fairly and equally. That's right in all situations because that's really what they're striving for right is is the equal application of the law and and, and, and and if you look at these three opinions part of the battle over textualism is what's the appropriate role of the courts i mean because gorsuch basically comes out and says okay the law says sex okay and if we go ahead and say for instance uh, with an employee who is homosexual, okay, uh, or excuse me, heterosexual. If we say that uh, an employer um, cannot discriminate against a man, okay, um, whose uh, sexual preference is women, then why can we allow employers to go ahead and discriminate against a man whose sexual preference or orientation is another man. Right, we can't. We have to apply the law equally. Equally, no matter how they identify themselves sexually or in terms of their orientation. Okay. Okay. And if they had meant gender, they would have written gender. Okay. They had the word gender in 1964. I know because the Kinsey report came out not too long thereafter and it had the word gender all over it. Like okay. gender existed as a concept. They didn't put that in. It, I, I would think that Gorsuch is basically saying it's not my fault that you used weak language. Well, yeah, and Gorsuch is basically throwing it back, if you will, to all the members currently of the United States Congress who are upset and saying, well, if you disagree with the court's majority on how we're interpreting sex in this case, then rewrite the freaking law. Right. Okay. Go back and write gender there instead of sex if that's what you want to. Yes. Right. But the two dissents are like, hey, wait a minute here. When the law was written, sex was commonly defined, okay, as okay, binary male, female. That's right. And it's not our job to update a law that, pat, that Congress passed. Whose job is it in a democracy? Congress. Congress. So, Ooh, that's tough. It is huge. And, that's, and way, that's a tough, and it, I mean, it, I'm, I think of myself as relatively liberal in terms of my social. Policies, uh, yeah. Social policies, but that's tough because do you, do you fix what you think Congress ought to mean by something 
but we regularly do not let the court tell Congress what to do because... That's right, because that's not their job in the Madisonian model of democracy, right? right? And, and by the way, my students, when I, when, I, when I teach constitutional law, the first couple of weeks, I talk about, you know, the parts of the Constitution we're going to cover and what's the appropriate role for courts, okay, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, my students, their eyes, is, their eyes glaze over. They're like, <laughs> when are we going to get to the cases, right? And I'm like, no, 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 guys, you need to know this stuff. Because when we get to the cases, you will see these battles among the justices as to what is the appropriate role for the court in our society. And that's okay. what these, these, that's what these dissents are showing? Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, in Kavanaugh's dissent, he just comes out and says, I disagree with how Gorsuch, okay, is using textualism. I feel bad for the plaintiffs in these cases who were discriminated against by their employers. The problem for me is I don't think it's this institution's job to give them relief. Alito. Oh man. Okay. See, I that's hard for me because I yes. kind of agree with that. Like okay. if you're gonna have separate branches. Is. Oh man, I feel a little dirty. Oh hey. I mean now I now I'm torn. I mean I I'm happy with the verdict. Oh, yes. Because yes. I feel like it's yes. the right verdict. I so, feel like it's the right thing to do as far as treating people equally, and which is what you should be doing. Yes. But I also can see yes. Kavanaugh's point that this yes. is not our job. Our job is not to fix what Congress has screwed up. Our job is to tell Congress to fix. That's right. To fix it. Yes. By saying this is not something we can decide. This has to be done in the legislative branch you know, huh? uh, oh man now uh, i don't know what to feel yes oh i'm having all the feelings and, and, and by the way Nia, i've had this conversation with a number of my former students who are supporters of the lgbtq uh, uh, community or you know who are you know proud members of that community and many of them okay who have read the opinions they've taken constitutional law with me so you know they've read the opinions and they're just like <clears throat> I like the outcome. I'm just not entirely sure <clears throat> that I agree with Gorsuch's opinion. Um, I actually am fine, and, and it really bothers them that they have any kind of sympathy with, you know, what Brett Kavanaugh wrote in his bed, right? And I, I have to say that I, that's part of it is that I, I know that people like and don't like different justices for different reasons. Sure. Um, and I'm not a huge fan of Brett Kavanaugh, uh, in part because I, I, I just have a variety of reasons for not um, caring for him as an individual. I mean, as far as justices are concerned, I'm sure he's a perfectly reasonable individual, uh, personally. Um, but like his California ruling, I didn't care for, right? Like, so I find, but now I'm like, oh no, see, he's actually making a not unreasonable argument there, which aggravates me because I prefer it when he is completely unreasonable and I can just dismiss it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I used to prefer it when Scalia was like that, when he would make an argument that I would say, oh, I just can't stand any of that. Good. I can pretend you don't exist. But, but often Scalia made me think too. He made me think, Wait, that's not necessarily. I mean, he's he has a point. And 
Ugh, now I don't and, know how to feel. And, and, what does Alito say? Well, Alito, okay, just goes after Gorsuch for how he does textualism. He's just, he, he's just like, okay, you can't, what's the metaphor he uses? Um, Gorsuch's version of textualism is like a pirate ship, okay, um, that is out of control, okay? We don't know the destination, and it can pretty much mean or be or do or, you know, take whatever it wants, whenever it wants. Oh, right? so he's, he's mad at the interpretation of textualism. Oh, yes. I okay. mean, yeah, he just comes, you know, I mean, and... and okay, <laughs> I'm all about a pirate metaphor. I'm just going to say I need to read that dissent because... I mean, and again, it's just truly fascinating because the, the divide here, okay, is among the, you know, so-called conservatives on the court. Right. The four, the four liberals are sitting back and just basically going ahead and saying, okay, well, we want another close one. Yeah. The four liberals are saying, we like the outcome. We're good. They're like me. We're good with the outcome. And then they're saying, and we've decided not to involve ourselves in your argument about textualism. <laughs> That's kind of where I am. I, I'm going to just take the win and walk away. Um, without actually getting into the question that, but, but I can't really do that because part of what we do here is we talk about hard things and yes. this is a hard thing. I mean, if, if you come down on the idea that you believe that constitutionally we are three branches for a reason and that one of those does not have oversight over the others in the sense of telling them what to do, then you have to, you have to take this as a mixed victory. Yes, I mean, and, but and on the one side, in terms of humans, it's a good thing. That's right. But in terms of completely with you, Nia, yep. of of government intermingling, and maybe there's some confusion about the branches and the separation. It's a loss, and or at the very least, a, a some sort of in between, a win and a loss. You know, yeah, a draw. I mean, the example I like to use with my students is I'm like, okay, you know, if you believe the court should go ahead and um, update laws, okay, passed by legislative bodies, you better hope you like how an unelected branch is updating the laws. Right. Okay, because if right, because if that court had gone the other way and made that argument, I would be up in arms and angry about it. Yes, yes. So, and I would yes. say you can't do that. You can't just interpret. You have to send that back to. Con uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah it's one of yeah. The, you asked. You caught me on this once before with with your like. So you think the outcome? You know, and I'm like, oh man, you're making me think. <laughs> I can't just accept the outcome without re without actually understanding the arguments on the other side. Yeah. Because they are not illegitimate arguments because if it had gone the other way, I'd be pissed. I'd be on the side of people who were growling at the bone and walking away and saying, this is not okay. This is, this is not okay. Acceptable. And, and, and I remind students of this all the time. I hate when you do that. 
<laughs> you you reasonable intelligent person you well, i just want to feel my feels and you're like um okay but <laughs> yes you can go ahead and feel your feels okay i'm just going to go ahead and you know provide some intervening thoughts for you to consider yeah how are you how i can't I, I think you asked me how i would have felt if i want to say it was something about if trump had won something Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I, I went ahead and asked you about this uh, in, in the uh, Gonzalez versus Raish, uh, Grandma's Growing Podcast, okay, um, where I went ahead and asked you, okay, so what if the Supreme Court had gone ahead and said, okay, that a law passed by Congress, okay, that's still on the books, okay, uh, that regulates, you know, drugs across the states. What if Congress had gone ahead and said, you know, we don't have a problem with hardcore opiates, Okay, and the United States, you know, uh, Supreme Court says, but you should, and we're going to update it for you. And you're like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, but you're sympathetic to the grandmas who are only growing pot because of their medical conditions. You, you know, and, right. and but you know, the Commerce Clause is read broadly, <laughs> okay, to cure all kinds of national public policy problems. Yeah, I'm surprised that this somehow didn't involve the Commerce Clause. Well, the court had long ago already ruled that the 1964 Civil Rights Act was constitutional because employers, okay, traffic in commerce that cuts across state lines. So they uh, are. So they it are is the Commerce Clause. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is the Commerce Clause. I should, if I ever get a tattoo, I should get the Commerce Clause tattooed on my person. I've actually had students uh, recommend that as my next tattoo. You know, something with the just commerce. Saying, <laughs> you could say everything comes back to this. You could just point to it, especially if you put it somewhere where it's visible, you know, on your hand, or you could just hold up your hand in front of your <laughs> students and they'd be like, oh, I see it's the commerce clause. But so, so really this was a philosophical question about how they're going to go forward. In, yeah. as much as this case was also um it, it's about how they're going forward with this and how they'll go forward interpreting the law not just from this case but from other cases well it, it, and, and uh and i can't remember which opinion uh, touched upon this but congress used the concept word sex in so many laws. So this has the potential of affecting not only Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but hundreds of other laws. Oh, that's, okay? that's and again, many gonna of these, be complicated, isn't it? Yes, many of these laws were written in the 1960s and the 1970s. Um, and again, there's very little evidence that the United States uh, Congress was thinking about anything other than, you know, binary men or women. So Congress may have to address this anyway. Yes, I mean, because otherwise the federal government's gonna be spending a whole bunch of time in federal court, okay? Um, trying, trying to get interpretations of. Yes, or trying to uh, offer, shall we say, an intelligible principle, okay, that the lower courts can use. Okay, this is, you know, and this again, is a giant can of worms. It's a giant can of worms. And it's, 
And it's not necessarily a reason why the Supreme Court should not have taken this case or not have ruled right. in this case, but nevertheless, right. okay, if you follow Gorsuch's majority opinion, and by the way, it was joined without concurrence by five other justices, right. okay, five other justices, okay, I mean, this is controlling precedent now. This is controlling precedent. So, you know, the lower courts, okay, would have an obligation to explain why they're not following Gorsuch's majority opinion in interpreting the text of a federal law that says sex can or cannot be used, okay, um, uh, 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 to either discriminate or to give an advantage or benefit? Whoa, okay. Well, it's interesting. I was just thinking about the university's policy um, of non-discrimination, and I think it mentions both. Yes. I think it mentions yes. sex and gender as a way to make it as broad as possible with as many people as possible. As possible. Um, and, and as many different circumstances as possible. So it may be that, uh, well, we'll see. And we'll see what could get through this Congress I mean, at this point, I'm not sure that anything could get through this Congress with any sort of definition of anything. Um, no, I, I, I... But that'll be something that people, I suppose, will start working towards with other of these laws now. Now yes. that there's been this, there'll be other cases that come through where they say, okay, what about this situation? What about this situation? What about, oh, yeah, that's, wow. Mm -hmm. This is big. This is huge. Yes. Okay. Um... <laughs> I I hadn't even thought about how huge this was until you just said that. So now yep. I, I have things to think about that are, I'm sure it will come up again this summer because I'm sure there'll be another one of these that they'll, that they'll decide something huge and I'll be like, okay, why is that a big deal? And you'll go, because blah, and I'll go, oh no, it's huge. Because yes. um, they seem to be doing a lot of big work right now, which is why you have to be careful about who's on the court. Yes. You want thoughtful, intelligent people who are being careful and, and who also are not interpreting based on some sort of politicization. And I know we're going to talk about that at some point this summer, sort of when did that happen? When did we start thinking of them as liberal and conservative, conservative and, and, yes. and all that other kind of stuff? But thank you so much for walking me through this. Sure. I, and, I, I, quite obviously, I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, me too. I always learn so much. And we're going to talk about court packing, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you, Augie. Well, thank you, Nia. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.